Section 7 of A Change of Air by Catherine Fullerton Gerald. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Section 7 Bessie John was a little thin. She had never been plump, but there had been just flesh enough to fill the hollows. Now there were visible concavities in cheek and neck. She was a brave woman, however, and though two years had passed since the November afternoon forty people had spent uncomfortably together in Miss Wheaton's drawing-rooms, though the first glow of apparent wealth had faded, and life was constantly making unexpectedly dull demands upon her, she had spirit and humor left to face the world with. The sea captain's front parlor was a little frayed and dimmed by time and accidents, the house had shrunk appallingly since the twins had come. A very necessary white uniformed person perpetually snatched from the Johns the price of opera tickets. Bills were rendered as inconveniently, it seemed, as they had been in the earlier days. But Bessie John had not coquetted with her colonial ideal. She had really accepted it for better, for worse. If she had developed a tendency to tea-gowns, they were only her substitute for caps. Her movements were as brisk as ever, and her tea-gowns were made of serviceable stuff. There is no doubt that Bessie John, in accepting her ideal, had deliberately narrowed her vision. She bade fair to be some day over-domestic, over-maternal, over-conventional, to let herself go in consecrated selfishness. In other words, she was shaping to the type of wife and mother. For her husband and her children, she was prepared to be a brute to the rest of the world, if the rest of the world got in their way. In the earlier years of her marriage, Philip John had held her, as it were, on a leash. She had liked her leash, but there had been strains and tugs, gambolings that amused John, now she was tethered more firmly, and when Philip went forth into the world she did not accompany him. She was going to be more colonial than she had ever dreamed of being. Her hyperboles had turned and clutched her. A nice woman, Bessie John, but not in the least what she had seemed to be when childless, mocking, and poor. Sometimes she wondered fantastically if she would have developed differently under the influence of Chinese Chippendale. But she soon gave over even wondering, for the beginnings of change in her were real. Take an instance. In the first days of buying and furnishing, she had spoken lightly to her husband of Julie Fort. Now that Julie was known to have taken the primrose path, Bessie John never mentioned her at all. She had for Julie's vagaries the sternness, not of religion, for religion comports charity, but of convention, which, being a law and nothing more, does not trouble itself with psychology. It is ticklish business to damn people, for damning is, after all, God's affair, but it is perfectly simple to cut them, and in her heart Bessie John cut Julie. If you ask me the real reason for her mentally cutting Julie, she had no chance to cut her face to face, for Julie was still abroad. I can only say that I believe it was because the twins were boys. Or another example, more vital still. 
Mrs. John had recently found it possible once more to call Mrs. Williston Aunt Blanche. She had come to feel the natural solidarity of people who have a little money as against those who have none. Two years after Miss Wheaton's beneficent gesture, Bessie John would not have given the great-nephew a dollar for cigarettes. Superficially, of course, not much of all this was visible. Bessie John had not yet altered her vocabulary. It would take a good many years for her to achieve the type towards which she was straining, but her type was certainly meeting her halfway. Consider the twins. Philip John, content from boyhood to be as God made him, did not hold within himself the seeds of change. When he seemed different, you might be sure that he had only turned slowly about, unconsciously displaying another aspect. You might never have seen it before, it might surprise you, but that was sheer miscalculation on your part, and could be laid to no fickleness of his. He was romantically devoted to his wife, though he did not wholly understand her. He was a little surprised at her passion for domesticating herself, but it fell in with traditions familiar to him so that he merely considered himself more fortunate than ever. The new necessity of economy was more welcome to him than the first flush of extravagance had been. It was part of life as he had always expected to find it. Bessie continued to love him as much as if it had not been her duty to. What more could he ask? From that you must make out as well as you can what life was eventually to do with the Johns. It was again November. Bessie John waited in the dimmed drawing-room for her husband to come home. Even the twins' couché was not allowed to interfere with the quiet half-hour between his return and the necessity of dressing. What was the white-uniformed person for? Bessie was possessed of the very moral intention of getting full service for the wages she paid. Let one of the twins depart in any way from the laws of nature as laid down by specialist, and she was on the spot, flushed and alert. Otherwise, Philip was her husband. He came in later than she had expected him, with a worried look that did not escape her. She bundled him into the big winged chair, it needed recovering, and as usual took the words out of his mouth— out of his throat, rather, since they never reached his lips. How tired you are, precious! Was it very rotten? If Mr. Reed looks like a trip to South America, you must get out a warrant. I hope you reminded him that the investments were all made by his explicit advice. Is there anything the matter with our money, dear? Not a thing, so far as I know. Well, then nothing matters, does it? But he's a beast to make wrinkles in your forehead. He might have considered me. You have all the looks of the family, and if he mars your beauty, I will sue him. The next time I will reply to Mr. Reed's summons. The money is mine, anyhow. I never gave you a penny of it for your own, did I, dear? No, you didn't. He underscored the words. Well, of course, she flung out her hands in a beautiful free gesture. I couldn't trust you with it, could I now, Philip? 
We had it all out. You don't mean to say that you wanted me to. I didn't say that, Bess. Why, Phil... Phil, is there anything in this? I told you I couldn't trust you to spend it on yourself, to fend off beggars in high places. I kept it, heaven knows, so that it would be kept. You've always had a power of attorney. And what business is it of Mr. Reed's, anyhow? Can't you and I decide a thing like that? You're way off, my dear. He laughed a little. Why should Reed lecture you through me? Do you think he would do such a thing, or I listen to him? Well, what is it, then? Bessie John stroked her dark blue dress, smoothing the thin stuff out over her knees. She had relaxed since the reassuring words came. Reed wants to see us both tomorrow afternoon, and we are not the only ones. He is sending for others, too. Levin, I believe, and Mrs. Williston, and one or two more. Something is up but he didn't tell me what. I think he got me there to tell me and then changed his mind. I reminded him that I was not directly concerned in Miss Sweeten's gifts. I made the appointment for us both tomorrow, according to his request. Mrs. John had sprung to her feet while he spoke. Philip, she cried. She wants to take it back, but she can't. She can't. Mr. Reed ought to know that. I hope you didn't give him any encouragement. Why, I'd take it to every court in the country. It was a free gift. Nothing could have been more legal. Do you think the papers were wrong? Inadequate? Lawyers are capable of anything. Calm down, Bess. I should say the transfers were about as legal and final as transfers could be. And I don't believe you realize that Mr. Reed's firm is one of the most respected in the city. They wouldn't lend themselves to a trick if they could. You do get the strangest ideas. I get them because I am afraid. You said yourself that something was up. If the investments are all right and the title is impeccable, I don't see what it can be. But there's trouble ahead somehow. I can feel it all over. Oh, when you take to feeling things all over, he scoffed wearily. A woman's brain, I really believe, isn't restricted to her headpiece. The tips of my fingers tell me things. She clawed the air delicately with them by way of emphasis. Philip John leaned over, caught the clawing fingers on an ascending spiral, and kissed them. I don't know what it is, dear, but we're bound to go and see. It can't be anything very bad, even if worst came to worst. If worst came to worst, it would be chaos and old night. Do you realize I have planned out our whole existence for three score years and ten on the basis of what we have, with margins for accident and everything? I've counted to a dollar the twins' schooling and their advantages, adenoids and all. I've counted in your prospective rises in salary, every one exactly as it may be expected to occur. Why, my dear, I have a budget all made out until the twins are twenty-five, and for us after that. We're thrown on the wide world if anything happens to my money. I've built up a philosophy of life on it. You take away my law and my profits, you take away my soul, if you take it away. 
Souls oughtn't to be dependent on hard cash, ought they? Why don't you take orders, Philip? she mocked. I've turned myself into a certain kind of person. I've borne you children. I've made a covenant with society. I have done irrevocable things. And if you talk of losing the little money we have, I shall scream. Am I a serpent that I should cast my skin? I have not been extravagant. I couldn't be. The change was too solemn for that. I've taken vows, if you like. Mr. Reed shan't have a penny to trick me into having children. Bess, his reproach was only in part for her incoherence. Well, that would be it. I should never have consented to have them if I hadn't expected to bring them up decently, to make their bodies fit in their minds noble. Cordelia Wheaton brought those children into the world. She'll not go back on her responsibilities while I am there to fight for them. She dropped back exhausted. Her tone changed. Forgive me, Philip. I may have said things to pain you, only I hate being the mouse when someone else is the cat. I think you can trust me. I shan't make a scene, whatever happens. Nothing can happen, dear, so far as I can see. And you know, when you happen to feel like a mouse, you think everything is a cat. She leaned over him and patted his shoulder. I know you don't misunderstand me. We've always been so straight with each other at every stage. I couldn't live without the twinnies, even if I had to take them round with a hurdy-gurdy and make all our livings in coppers. I honestly couldn't. I could have got on very well without maternal affection, but once there you can't get rid of it. It's indestructible as asbestos. I know you understand so you'll forgive me, won't you? Of course. She was sitting on the arm of his chair, and he drew her head to his shoulder. I wonder who the others will be, she mused, smiling a little. Old Mr. Levin goes without saying. How Aunt Blanche hates him. He's godless, you know. It will be fun to see them together. Thank heaven for everyone's sake, Julie Fort's abroad. She has spent all hers, they say. And old Miss Bean, what a pity she can't be there. I met her once in Mr. Reed's office, and she looked at his chair as if it were the great white throne. You know the way she pulls her poor old skirts up and cringes away a little from anything she respects. But she's safe in the hospital. In the hospital? What's the matter? Shh. Shh. Aunt Blanche told me in confidence. She went back to the Holy Rollers after a season of new thought. She couldn't think newly enough. And last week she broke her leg rolling under a porch in Hackensack. Saints always did have hard luck with their anatomies, you know. Bessie John laughed softly as she ruffled her husband's hair. Then she rose quickly. I must go and say good night to the twins, Philip. Won't it be funny when they can say good night? Let's dress extremely for dinner. Put on all your pearls, dear, and we'll open something and drink to Cordelia Wheaton. That's what teetotalers were meant for, to have their healths drunk. She left the room, still laughing softly. The Johns dined festily. Not only did Bessie open Burgundy, 
but she produced as well her own particular vintage, not her mere railing of every day, but wit with a bouquet, of which she still had a little left. It bubbled up between them, evoking youth, when there had seemed to be an inexhaustible store of it. Smart and shimmering in her best frock, she faced Philip John with all his pearls on. She even won her sober-seeming husband to irresponsibility with her. They laughed until they choked. They invaded the sea captain's front parlor with a nursery atmosphere, where everyone plays as hard as he can, and it is someone else's business to pick things up afterwards. It was late when they went upstairs to bed. Philip John, positively worn out with fun, slept almost immediately. His wife lay on her side, watching his vague form in the bed next hers. The glimmer of a street light struck through a crack in the shutter and enabled her to half see, half surmise the sleeping shape of him. She was not nervous. She was thinking. Her bodily comfort was complete. It was not pleasant to stay awake with thoughts like hers, but how much better than to sleep and wake unprepared. She really needed the time and the peace. For Bessie John, in the midst of her gaiety, had suddenly understood. It had come to her like a flash as she crossed the hall to fetch something they needed for an absurd joke. Towards dawn she seemed to herself to have canvassed every inch of the situation. The tactician in her dismissed his staff. Without an effort or a sigh, she turned on her other side and slept. End of section 7